Now we're here, how do we get out? Presented by actor and animal activist Peter Regan and filmmaker Andrew Telling. So, uh, hello everyone, here we are again at um, Now We're Here, How Do We Get Out? And um, it's a, always a compelling question. And um, So how do we get out, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting, actually. It's, I don't know what it is necessarily about the topics that we cover, but it's interesting how... how I don't know whether people are engaging as much as they potentially should do or, or could, would yeah. do or could do. There's no well, judgment here. There is a problem, I think, where you're dealing with subjects that are really ostensibly very, very serious ones, which are the life of our planet, the life of humanity, mm. and the intense, aggressive cruelty um, imposed on all other species on our planet. And I was very interested to see this week that great David Attenborough said that, uh, a headline, it is hypocritical for us human animals to be eating meat. And I was really relieved to see that because meat production, there's no question about it, that meat production is, as we've discussed before, is destroying our planet. And he also said we muffed it. Our generation have muffed it. Indeed they did. Which yes. I thought was tremendous wording. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Well, it, uh, I mean, it's not his, his fault entirely, but he is right. This is a generational thing, and I certainly think, I'm 20 years younger than he is, I think that my generation muffed it as yeah, well. interesting. And messed the whole thing up. We've taken so much out of this planet. We've taken so much out of this world. We've seen the best of it. And I am very, very aware that we have got to put an awful lot back to correct the amount that we've taken out. Yeah, yeah. And um, certainly as far as I am concerned, that is totally related to what it costs the planet to produce the meat that we are eating. And that's certainly why I'm fascinated to speak to our, our next guest, um, the inspiring Juliet Galatoly, the founder of Viva, which incidentally I am a, a patron for and, as well. Another patron. Another. How, how do you find the time, Peter? <laughs> well, I live up to my name as being the man who can't say no. But, but it is interesting, as you say, that um, it, this is a difficult conversation for us to have. These podcasts are difficult because they're serious. And I, I would love it if um, we could engage more with... Um, with people, I agree, and I think I think the idea of these podcasts now we're here is basically talking about the situation we're in and how do we get out. Really, we try and make it a non-judgmental and optimistic pathway through. I I, I hope people don't listen to these and think they're didactic and we're yeah. just trying to push yeah. people and beat people over yeah. the head. That is absolutely not what we're trying absolutely to do. Absolutely not. Here. We're trying to understand it. We're yeah, trying to definitely. chart it. Um, and it's none of it is done with um, aggressive, um, obstructive opinions. Definitely, not. it is hopefully dealing with the truth of the matter, and that's why it's going to be so fascinating talking to our next guest. So, it's hello to Juliet. How are you, Juliet? I'm very well, thank you. You were you're clearly a great fan of your mum's, and you were very, oh. very influenced <laughs> by her. And I just wondered if you'd like to talk to us about your mum for a bit. Oh, you know, that's the first time I've ever been asked that question. It's just so nice to, um, you know, honour her. Uh, my mum died in 2015. It was a huge loss, obviously, um, to my life. As a, as a child, she used to say that I 
used to fight for the underdog and she said for whatever reason you were just born that way did, did she on getting so much feedback from you fighting for the underdog did it alter her eating patterns at all it did. It, it was a little bit of a tough job because she was convinced nutritionally, because remember, I'm going back quite a long time now yeah. to when I was, you know, sort of, uh, I suppose about 12 at this point. Um, she thought that, you know, I would waste away. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, you couldn't, you couldn't Google stuff back then, no, you know, so no. it was much more challenging to get the information that you wanted. So I was finding my way around and I remember she would cook for me and cook chicken up into tiny little pieces and put it in the rice salad. <laughs> she really genuinely thought oh. I needed it that much as a growing girl. Bless her. And, uh, I know, and I, and I found it, and I said, Mum, don't ever do that again, and, and yeah. um, gave her a good talking to, and, and she said, okay, I understand, and together then, we kind of made some discoveries, and I was a Bolshe so-and-so, um, and I actually managed, I suppose I was about 14 at this point, to actually go to a factory farm myself in person, um, and it was one of the biggest in the UK, in the Midlands, and I walked into this huge shed, which was concrete building and you can imagine as a 14 year old confronting this stuff it's so yeah. different from putting mm. it on a um and this guy who was taking us around was talking about all the economics of it and all the advantages of factory farming and i was just looking at the state of these animals so these were pregnant pigs in what were called sow stalls back then so basically caged yeah. and i walked across there were two boars in this um shed with hundreds and hundreds of pregnant females and they were in a right old state. They had a bigger space, like a small pen, but it's just all concrete with nothing to do. But very big animals, like Shetland pony size. Yeah. One of them dragged himself towards me, and he was salivating. He just looked very poorly. Oh. And he looked me in the eye, and I looked him back. And that was the pivotal moment for me. That was the founding of Viva. I didn't know that, of course, then. Yes. But I went mm. home, and he was back to my mum. And told her this and she was just pretty much as devastated as, as I was and devastated for me going through it and so she did yes in answer to your question she changed and my sister did and my brother did the one who was lagged behind completely was my dad and he took 20 years and when he actually told me we were out on a walk and from nowhere he said back then Julia I'm going vegetarian honestly you could have not me over with the proposal. Oh, so, so, so you, you'd have been you'd have been thirty four or so by this time. If it's, yeah, I'd, oh God, it's, I'll be trying to work that. Oh yeah, I guess I was. But yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? Coming off the back of a sense where people believe that animal protein was so important in human health. Absolutely. And uh, the irony is that some of that goes back to a vegetarian called Francis Moore LePay, who set out this thing saying vegetarians needed to mix their food groups to get all the amino acids they needed to get the protein. And she has apologised for saying that ever since. <laughs> it, it, it was it was it was set. Um, you know, the science has moved on so much of since course, that statement yeah. was made decades ago. Yeah. But it was very convenient for the meat industry to propagate that that myth that somehow. Oh. Absolutely. Would but, get less protein what, and less of this. What I'm interested in, Ju Juliet, is at this time were you were you eating whatever was on your plate? I was. I was brought up as an absolute, you know, meat eat everything uh -huh. eater. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. And it's, then it was a little bit older when, in fact, I started to analyse, you know, vivisection, and then I found out about um, factory farming. 
and I started looking through the. It was then. It was when I actually looked at a leaflet at factory farming that it was like click, click, drum. You know. Yeah. And then of course you get a little bit older, a little bold, and you start to analyse this. Well, would they want to die anyway? And yeah, then you start yeah. to analyse what your place is in the world, don't Absolutely. you? Did you come to all of these discoveries and conclusions purely based on your your own feelings? I did really because there was very few people to talk to. I didn't have a single friend in school who felt the way I did or as passionately as I did. And I'm not saying they didn't like their own cat and dog, but just just didn't want to think about all the subjects that I wanted to. And my family, I was educating them. They were sort of a little yeah. bit bemused by me, to be honest. <laughs> it's really interesting because it's actually incredibly brave because when I was that age, I was so desperately trying not to be an outlier. I think I think I am strong, but don't get me wrong, I did, you know, what you were just saying about that peer pressure, you know, I did feel it. I would feel I can remember feeling the nervousness and stress of it as I would go around with my very first petition, which was actually to ban snaring. Yeah. And wow. I thought it was so cruel and it's still, you know, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. But the response of people, I was really shocked by that some people were laughing at it. Mm. So I thought, well, I have to work for an animal rights organisation. But of course, as you well know, there aren't actually that many and there are even less than to work for. Yeah. So I got a job um, in the media in Covent Garden, actually. And I thought, I'm just going to try and do something that's useful, that gives me transferable skills. And that's that's the way I sort of thought. And then... I got a job for an anti-vivisection society, which was then based in Harley Street in London. It was, there was only 12 staff. And then I left there and went to work for the Vegetarian Society. And that's when I was promoted very rapidly. I was their first youth campaigner. And then I left to set up Viva because yeah. Viva's a much more campaigning-orientated yeah. organisation. Had you, during that period, transitioned to veganism or were you still just a vegetarian? I was vegetarian when I started working for them and vegan by the time I left. And what what was the what opened the door to veganism while you were there? Um I started to look obviously in more detail at the industries themselves and in fact the the final straw if you like was I then lived in the countryside literally <laughs> you know very rural and was sur surrounded by farmers on every side and the farmer up the road put his um mother cows in the field outside of our home and one of them unusually gave birth to twins because not they don't often have twins and so obviously I was showing a lot of interest in them and the farm workers came up um, with the farmer and lifted these calves to take them away and I said what are you doing what, what are you doing with the game and he said they, these will go for veal so I knew exactly what that meant and I just uh, I went into the house and poured all the milk away in the house um, didn't give anybody else an option either actually yeah. um, just everything to do dairy just disappeared mm. that day and um, didn't touch it again. Julia, what did campaigning look like before Google and, mm. and Twitter and Facebook? Going back to one of the first campaigns I did for the Vegetarian Society was called Scream, School Campaign for Reaction Against Meat. And so I produced this pack which contained, you know, things that won't surprise you, um, a leaflet and uh, a poster and stickers and a little green booklet. It was an A to Z of going veggie, in fact. So we placed ads in things like Just 17 existed then and a magazine called Mears and so on and so forth. So, so these were magazines aimed at like 12 to 14 year olds mainly. So you'd have to place that traditional ad, you know, printed ad. They would get their magazine and read through it and then respond. Now, we were the first people who'd ever done anything like that. And I can remember that set off something incredible. About nine months after that campaign started, we were still getting 500 to 900 
200 letters. So kids back then wrote you, hand wrote you a letter and posted it in the mail. Mm. And we were getting 500 to 900 a day. That's amazing. Month, yeah. month. It is amazing. It, the response was just bonkers. Did you, do, you, do you think it's, yeah. it was a more meaningful response than perhaps some of the responses you receive these days? It's a really interesting question because I was talking to my sons. I've got twin sons who are 18, who are about to go off to university. Um, and I was talking to them about this because it's such, you know, they've never experienced this, like what you hand wrote to somebody. Yeah, yeah. You know? And yes, the, the short answer is yes, often it was because they would pour out their hearts in these handwritten letters and you don't tend to get that from young people anymore. Mm. It's... It's much more, I don't know, flippant's the right word. Yeah. It, yeah. It, but, yeah, you're, it was more meaningful, yes. Yeah. It's interesting, that, isn't it? Because it, it takes much more commitment to write a letter anyway. So you, you, you are dedicating more of yourself to what you're doing. And communicating by email is so much um, faster. And it's, it is impersonal. And, um, and the thing is, teenagers don't, don't communicate by email. They communicate by things like Insta and Snapchat. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so and so it's even more um, brief in terms of its context because that's how they communicate. If you take the time to to write something, you are giving a lot of yourself to it. You're, right. you're making a contract between yourself and the page and the idea. If you're doing an Insta and stuff like that, you, there is no there's a, a response and no internal contract. It, Absolutely, uh, I totally agree with that. It's it's a strange thing, social media. There are very big benefits and there are very big cons as well. Indeed, mm, definitely. And, and so, do you think that, that when you get followers that just follow you, say from Instagram or something like that, do they remain with you, or is there a bigger commitment or less of a commitment? I, th I think. Um, that's a difficult one to answer because if you jump to Facebook where we've got a very big following, um, people do tend to stay with you, but are they staying with you just because why would they unfollow you? What would, what would in, be the in point? The, yeah, absolutely. It wants, yeah. wants to check that thing. So, yeah. so it doesn't give you the meaning that maybe, you know, you would like, but so, you, so you're judging it much more by the individual mm. posts, the kinds of interaction you're tending to get with your audience rather than the overall number of followers. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you were moved uh, near the dairy farm and you watched the two calves being born and taken away, was that the moment, the door, that said, I, I am going to focus on being a vegan? Back then, there was nobody doing it. There was nobody actually really banging the drum on the issues because yeah. there was the vegan society, which was information-based, not campaigning, the vegetarian society, which I worked for, which was much more food-based. And so no one else was really doing it. So Viva was um, one of the first, you know, in the UK, obviously there are more now, but um, yeah. to actually expose and investigate factory farming, for example, go in there, you know, uh, uh, film the reality of it and take that out to the public. You know, we were one of the first to be doing that kind of campaigning. Do you think uh, since you started the organisation, veganism has gone through a difficult image? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've met the people who count in some ways in the, because they're the ones that influence the public, i.e. Um, people very high up in certain supermarket chains over the years. And, you know, I've had some very frank conversations, CEOs of, um, you know, of food companies as well that I've met. It's been really interesting seeing the change in attitude. So, for example, about seven years ago, um, you know, I met somebody who worked for Tesco 
and they were talking about trialing various things and whether the word vegan should even go on things because mm. they thought it was too off-putting. So they literally decided not to put the word on there, even when something was vegan, for example. Interesting. And you, you think that through to today where you've got companies like Pizza Express on there, you know, the word vegan is like the first thing you see and it's gigantic. Yeah, yeah. That is a massive, massive change in perception. So they now see veganism as being aspirational to the ordinary person on the street. And that is when you know you're really changing things. Mm. And I went through this with vegetarianism, remember, first, because when I first started working on these issues, it wasn't aspirational. And while I was at the Vegetarian Society, I was there for almost seven years, it went through an absolute transformation where people from every walk of life we're going vegetarian and it just became normal and all the things that are happening with veganism today happen first with vegetarianism and mm. we went through those barriers first working with supermarkets and all the people supply, supplying you know the ready-mades the the restaurants all that we did all that i i created a campaign called national vegetarian week um which is still running today actually yeah and 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 saw that you know just kind of spiral into this huge campaign where the where, where people are competing over themselves in terms of what they do for it and that when i started I can remember doing public talks, literally almost being ridiculed. Um, the transformation in just that short space of time was gigantic. And then I moved on to veganism and I've seen it all happen again. And so, I mean, it's really interesting looking at stats, actually, because I was looking at um, a survey done by one of the major supermarkets, not for their supermarket, but it was across different ones. And so this was 2018-19. They did it between those two years. And the number of vegetarians were um, then almost 7 million people and they put vegans at 2.2 million people now these are very commercial bodies so so their interest is in really finding out what the truth is but they looked at the so-called flexitarian on top of that and obviously that's when they're getting very very interested so i met the ceo of corn mm. and sort of put a nice challenge to him about all the corn products becoming vegan he actually said we want them to um, not because he was vegan, but he did see the environmental benefits. He kept talking about that, and he thought that you know the world is basically in serious trouble. Yeah. People need to be eating vegan. And he said, "Look, the reason that we're interested in the in vegans is because they're the ones who repeat buy. Because if you're vegan, you've got to buy vegan. So they're That's an incredibly yeah. profitable audience. But the flexitarians, obviously, are who they mainly sell to." Um, and that, so they're constantly thinking of ways of how they attract this sort of more transitory audience who, mm. who jump between products. But obviously it's a huge audience, you know, over 90% of their products would be bought by them. But but it's a huge, huge, huge market. You're looking at almost half the population of Britain now of being that market. Peter and I were talking actually just before this podcast because there's a lot of discussion about a plant-based diet being the reason to stop the earth going into the direction it is going in. But yet, for so many, that's not enough. And the prospect of, uh, you know, let's just say, for example, a Sunday roast or summer barbecues is a bigger draw <laughs> than the end of the world. Yeah. Uh, or, or certainly that's how it seems. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, it is. It's it's human nature. It's it's the um, the head in the sand. We, we respond to er most people. You see, my background is zoology, as we've, we've already established. Yeah. And I just see us as another great ape. And there's only so much that we can cope with, just because of the way we've evolved as an animal. 
And um, so a lot of us, it's not that we want to be cruel. It's not that people want to be malicious. It's not that they want the earth to die. Of course it's not. Most of them have got children. It's just this short-sightedness of only responding to what's in front of you, literally in front of you. What do you think think drives that short-sightedness? What is it, do you think, in people that that makes them say, no, I I don't want to do that, it's it's my right? It's my rights, it's my civil liberty. It's it's more to do with people just following the flow of the way that they've been brought up in what's known as a carnist world. It's familiarity, it's what everybody else is doing around you. And that's why it's so important to state the obvious that all these restaurant chains are now not giving the vegan token gesture, the whole vegan menus, um, because then you've got people around you and you're influenced by people around you and you think, oh, I've got all this choice and actually it tastes really good. People do not generally want to stand out from the crowd. They want to be part of the crowd. We're evolutionary speaking an incredibly cooperative species and we like to play the game that is set out in front of us to play. And people like me are seen as troublemakers. And um, that is something, you know, that you have it, you have to believe in. And the so-called revolutions go through set stages, I'm sure you know. But, you yeah. know, they start yeah. off with this ridicule and all the rest of it. And it's not until you get to the point, I know it's talked about a lot, the so-called tipping point. <laughs> but it, that tipping point doesn't happen really and, uh, until the general public can see why it benefits them personally yeah. and their family. And we are now getting to that point where the education of the public is such that they can see when you've got people like David Attenborough saying, yes, we are in a sixth mass extinction. And in fact, industrialized factory farming has to end people, you know, and that's not even questioned on the media. It's just talked about as fact now. You know, that we're getting to that stage. We're not there by any means. You know, the vast majority of people still eat animal products. But their habits are changing, changing, changing. And you have to remember and give yourself hope by the fact that in my campaigning career, which let's just say three decades, the change in the public perception towards what we're aiming for has been absolutely phenomenal. When you think 30 years in historical terms is less than a blink of 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 an eye. So things are changing. In that 30 years, has it all accelerated to the point where it has changed rapidly in the last three to four years. It has, absolutely. And the same happened with vegetarianism. It was like this long plod towards a certain point and then suddenly it went whoosh. And it was almost like everything changed overnight. And do you... And do you... It's happening with veganism. You Mm. mentioned the word tipping point. Um, Mm. Do you you feel that, that... that veganism is really close to that tipping point because intensive agriculture, animal agriculture is increasing, it seems, rather than decreasing. Animal agriculture is increasing and also even worse, intensive farming is getting more intensive because what does a factory farmer know? And and the whole industry that surrounds that, all their industry is based on getting things to become more intensive. That's what they research. Yeah. And the thing is, if you look at the reasons for that worldwide, because you have to look at this globally to answer that question, if you're looking at countries like China and India, which are very populous, they are still at the stage where they're thinking it's aspirational to consume animals because they've been denied it in their eyes. Yeah. Uh, for so long so people it's driven very much by people becoming more wealthy um, mm. and and that is absolutely known um you know in terms of the change of dietary habits is related to people's individual yeah. 
um, wealth. So you have to get to the point with those countries, but they're going to catch up much faster than us. It took us a very long time because they're going to be influenced by the knowledge of the rest of the world. So you've got things like the Chinese government actually making noises, recognising that, for example, um, grain is going to run out because there simply isn't going to be the, the amount to be able to feed the amount of factory farmed animals worldwide no. if they continue the way that they are. So so, so the, the urgency of the issue is obviously there for people to change. And I think in terms of tipping points, what, when, they, when you get, get to those points, they tend to happen very rapidly. Yeah. It seems absolutely... It seems very far away because you're right, factory farming exists all over the world and we need intergovernmental cooperation really for factory farming to end. We at Viva are now working on, for example, the vision for, v v uh, sorry, for, for Viva. We're looking at the vision for veganism in Britain and what that would look like as a future. But to get that transition for the farmers, it's not that we don't want people to farm. We want them to farm plants, basically. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. And to diversify so that, they, that we can rewild and everything that we know about to stop global warming, to get that transition, you do need governmental help. And I personally, I have to be honest, do find that very frustrating yeah. because the reason I, I, the reason I chose consumer campaigning is because we've had such a positive response from the public. Whereas when you deal with politicians, they are so far behind industry and the general public that it, you know, you feel like tearing your hair out. Yeah. It's shocking, but that, isn't it? Where do you think the onus will come from? Do you think it will come from public opinions changing? Do you think it will come from peer pressure or do you think it will come from institutions and governments? Do you think we'll be forced into that position? What will happen is that individuals, so let's just call individuals the general public, within that general public you have head of businesses, you have people who work for incredibly important food organisations and then so on and so forth who is being as influenced you know, within organisations like the World Health Organisation, United Nations and so on and so forth as much as anybody else. You've got CEOs of major um, food corporations and supermarkets who are being influenced as much as anybody else and they are already diver diverging some of their funding and I mean huge funding into researching things like um, creating vegan burgers just as an, an obvious example instead of meat burgers mm. and I mean from plants but also in terms of yes lab meat yeah. the the interest in that is absolutely huge behind the scenes mm. and so so what happens is that those individuals make up industry and together those two forces with the media which is changing 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 mm. will will change the final hurdle and it's the big one which is governments mm. so do you think the argument has been won that we don't need meat i think it largely has to be honest there's very few people who actually even the meat industry doesn't say we need meat anymore um they will come at it from different tacks but over the years you know they've changed substantially where they're saying it can be part of them you know you know in moderate amounts part of the diet they don't even say we should eat meat every day like they used to yeah, uh, you yeah. know it's changed so very dramatically and i'll tell you just something which is interesting because this is a behind the scenes look at global global meat news because i read industry stuff um what it's very skeptical this and very cynical approach and it's rather like the oil companies similar approach they accept behind the scenes that their days are pretty much numbered and what they're doing is investing and i'm talking in the millions and millions and millions into alternative approaches obviously many of those are vegan um because they want to be ready for that change if you like but yeah. they're 
they're coming at it largely from an environmental perspective because they know everything that we know about the, the you know how serious this is in terms of environmental degradation that we're yeah. almost getting to that sad tipping point with the Amazon rainforest and the fires have increased this year and all the rest of it d- directly due to consuming um, beef and um, they are basically saying that governments will get to a point where they subsidise these industries to to um, to go over to being sustainable, kind, vegan, well, they don't use the word kind, uh, vegan companies. And they are waiting for that point. And so they're prepared to destroy the world <laughs> because commercially that's good for them at the moment until they get to the point when government will invest, you know, God knows how many hundreds of millions and billions into these companies to change yeah. over. That's yeah. interesting. It's as, cynical, it's as cynical as you can get, but they, they recognise, what I found interesting is they recognise the damage they're doing. Do you have a, a time in mind, do you have a sense when things might change for the mm. better from your point of view? Yes, I mean I'm loath to give specific time frames sure. because there are, it's so dynamic. But I think the next decade is absolutely crucial in terms of changing the whole human race huh, um, yeah. because of well, obviously the animal cruelty, but in terms of environmental. Yeah. What is interesting is that hopefully it will be the healing of the land that will inspire people in the future, rather than just the appalling cruelty of intensive animal agriculture. And that's one of the beautiful things in terms of, you know, we're doing this vegan Britain. Some of the stories coming out of people who are making the transition, who have, say, for example, farmed, let's say, cows, not just for their lives, but, you know, for generations, and who are shifting over to doing things another way and diversifying and actually rewilding and the pride that they're taking in doing that. And, the, the benefits that they see within such a short space of time um, are just absolutely so moving. And you're right, it is really inspirational and it gives you hope. And the more stories that we have like this and the more we connect farmers, because there's no point in creating enemies. We want people to change. Yeah. And, and, and that's that's a big issue, actually, isn't it, when you're working in any movement, is this attitude towards other people. Because absolutely. my attitude is that you need to bring them on board. Totally. And within that, you know, I, 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 I absolutely include people who work for the meat industry. You know what? I can remember when I was in my 20s and I worked for the Vegetarian Society and met the PR officer for the Meat and Livestock Commission. He asked me out on a date. <laughs> and, I, and I said, what? <laughs> and I said, but you, but what? Yeah, that's an odd <laughs> couple for you. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, well, what are you talking about? That's just work. And yeah. I thought, well, you know, that there lies a tale yeah. know, in terms of the difference. Because for him, it was. It wasn't something he believed in. Yeah, that's really and, interesting. And people, yeah, and people have got to get their heads around that. That, um, you know, once you go vegan, you, you, you quite rightly are passionate for all the right reasons. But I think you also have to remember back to when you consumed animals and think about what would persuade you back then and what attitude from that person talking to you would really influence you in a positive way and sometimes i think it's it's, some of us forget that did you go go on the date i didn't actually no i didn't um that's another story (laughs) (laughs) yes but what is fascinating also is in in relation to the farmers with the opportunities for a plant-based renewal and regeneration um, lifestyle there'll be more work for the farmers. So it's, the farmers are not, and also I don't think the farmers are at fault 
intrinsically, it's the corporations that are at fault and the hedge funds who just want to make money and have no caring at all about uh, the effect it's having on both the planet and also the humanity. Um, it's completely uncaring capitalism. Most of the um, industry, like, like let's take broiler chicken farming for as a very good example, is owned by very few corporations now. But yeah. you get obviously individuals who contract themselves out to these companies, so they are you know choosing to factory farm, and what they see, they must have some kind of consciousness that it's incredibly cruel but of course you can say they're just caught as caught up in the system as the person buying that chicken meat who goes to the supermarket because I think you know in this day and age you could say it's um, an, a, um, a deliberate ignorance if you liked to say that you don't know what factory farming is doing to those animals yeah. because the information is so readily available and the investigations are coming out in the national papers so this kind of like who do you blame who do you blame i don't really find it very helpful my attitude is who can we influence who can we influence yeah and and and, and go down that route but that doesn't mean don't get me wrong that i don't um you know get across the most powerful information that i possibly can and for a lot of people that is what's happening to the animals so yeah. when we did an investigation on flat house very very recently indeed just coming out of lockdown i did another you know, to camera. I was being filmed for a documentary, actually. It was just appalling, absolutely appalling place. But And we managed um, to place that very widely across traditional media, like the Daily Mail covered it as an exclusive, followed by The Sun, which, you know, may surprise some people, but they did a really good piece on it. Yeah. And that's brilliant to me, because you think about the audiences of these mm. papers, these are your typical meetings. But it's been fantastic talking absolutely. to you, Juliet. You are, you are amazing, and it's... Um, uh, that your detail and your knowledge is sensational. So it's a huge, huge pleasure. And, and thanks so much for giving us your time. Oh, thank you so much for all your support. Much appreciated. We always want to hear from you. So whether you have a question, an observation or a suggestion, please get in touch with Peter and Andrew by emailing life at orangeplanetpictures.com or search for Orange Planet Pictures on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.